0: Good morning. My name is Brandon, one of the pastors here at, uh, at Sojourn Heights. Uh, before we talk Corinthians, uh, let's talk coffee. Uh, I'm tempted to ask how many of you guys saw the note this week, but I'm not going to ask. I'm just going to assume that nobody saw it uh, and uh, let you guys know that our fiscal year turns over uh, July one. Uh, and so in June, our staff, our elders, and our financial stewardship team, which is a group of, of you, finalize our budget. And if you're new to Sojourn and don't know, we're in the middle of a capital campaign. We we bought the building next door to us. We're going to renovate that, make that our sanctuary, turn this into uh, kid space. And based on where we are, on our, our current kind of financial projections, we, uh, we, we we need to allocate as much of our money from our, our budget as we can uh, to go toward the capital campaign, which means that there are... Good things, um, good things that are going to have to get cut. Uh, we need to cut costs as much as we, uh, as much as we can, in order to to make sure that we're in a, a safe position, or at least put on pause, I should say, uh, to make sure we're in a safe financial p- position long term. Uh, and so, uh, we have uh, coffee today. I assume next week until it runs out. We will have uh, coffee on uh, on Sundays, but but one of the hopes that we have is that we would steward our lives and that we would steward our resources well and we we do think that coffee makes our sundays more hospitable and so we we think it's good stewardship of our life and our resources but in the season that we're in as a church right now even good things are going to have to get put on pause all right uh, now if you are not participating in the capital campaign and you call sojourn home if this is your first time you don't know what I'm talking about this is not for you but if you Call Sojourn Home, unless you want to. But if you call Sojourn Home, uh, we we want everyone to participate in the uh, capital campaign. And so behind me on the screen uh, is a slide two places to give, one on our website, and then, well, not two places to give, place to give, and then pledge cards so that we can have a a record of what the giving um, is. All right, I had to do that. I'm done with it. Let's talk Corinthians. Uh, Corinthians, a letter written uh, to a young church struggling with what it looks like to be a community faithful to Jesus. And this letter uh, has a few structural markers in it. The first one is right out of the gate in chapter one, where it's, I- I've heard that there's division among you. And then we hit another one in chapter seven, uh, where where it says, uh, responds to questions about sex. And then in chapter eight, the next one, um, where the question is, hey, can, can we eat food sacrificed to an idol? So someone takes food, takes meat, Makes it sacrifice it to an idol. Can we then, as Christians, go and um, eat that meat? And chapters eight through ten are Paul, the author, responding to that uh, question. And I think of his response a bit like he's peeling an onion, right? Just kind of one layer at a time until he gets to the um, gets to the heart of it. And the layer that we're going to get to today, it's going to uh, force some questions upon us, bring some questions to the surface for us. Questions like. What motivates, you? Like, what motivates you? What motivates you? What drives you? What, what makes you get up out of bed in the morning? Uh, why do you live in Houston? Why the, uh, why the heights? For me, I'm coming off two weeks in the mountains, Breckenridge, where it's a high of 70, and so my answer is I don't know. <laughs> I am gonna be planting a summer church in Breck, though, for anybody who wants to join me. Let's do this thing. Um, but Paul, uh, the author, is going to give us his answer, not for Houston, but for Corinth. And I have one hope, one objective today, is that we might see the heart of Paul. And might have the heart of Paul pressed into us. So let's go, verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Now, Let's pause and remember the context. He's, he's responding to the question about meat: Can we eat it? Can we not eat it if it's been sacrificed to an idol? Can we eat that um, meat? This was a highly controversial question in the early church, uh, and at the beginning, right at the gate in chapter eight, Paul says, "Hey, you're, listen, you're you're free. Eat the meat. Don't eat the meat. You're 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 free. But let me tell you what your freedom is meant for. Your freedom is meant for love. Just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should do something. And the freedom that you have." is meant to be an expression of love. And then he moves in chapter nine, the beginning of chapter nine, and says, let me, let me tell you what love looks like. It looks like you taking the rights, the entitlements, the freedoms that you have and setting them aside. And now he moves on and he takes that same line of thought and he applies it to the outsider. He applies it to the non-Christian. And he says, I am free to eat. Whether I eat or don't eat, I'm, I'm free to think about the outsider in making my decision. I'm free to think about the outsider and making my decision. Why? So that, in order that, so that I might win more of them. Win—it's literally the word gain—that I might gain more outsiders to Jesus. That I might have more of the rich, poor, religious, non-religious convert to Jesus. That's what gain is—it's shorthand for to convert. And now he um, turns to three groups of people in Corinth. Verse twenty it says to the Jews, "I became as a Jew." In order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. Same group of people, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. So the Jews think the religious people in Corinth who thought, if I just obey the law, if I do enough, then I will become accepted to God. And Paul saying, I'm not under the law. I'm not under the law, which does not mean I'm a lawless rebel, just. Rolling through Corinth, wrecking shop. It it means that I've been free from the belief that if I do enough, I'll be accepted by God. And because of what Christ has done, I am now therefore accepted and I'm not under the law. So what does it mean that I have become as one under the law? Well, immediate context, it means in answering the question, eat, don't eat. I, I follow the law when I'm with Jews. But we can take this and pull this out and get a broader context and look at more of Paul's life and see that there were times when when he was with Jews that he lived like Jews. I want to give you uh not every time but there there were times that he did and I want to give you two examples um acts sixteen three Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him. that's Paul circumcising Timothy because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was Greek. It's hard for me to read that text and not get a mental image of what was happening there, but this was Paul saying, Hey, we're going to be among the Jews. Timothy, let's circumcise you. And then in Acts 21 21 to 24, and they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to their customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourselves along with them and pay their expenses so they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what we have been told about you, but that you yourselves also live in observance to the law. These are examples of times when Paul and um, other Followers of Jesus were among the Jews and they lived like Jews when they were among them. Now, here's a question. Paul, if you're unfamiliar with much of the New Testament, uh, Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament and he wrote some of the richest theology on Christ being the fulfillment of the law. That the law being this foreshadow to Christ and Christ being the fulfillment of it. And so, why then would Paul, the the author who wrote so much about how Christ fulfills the law, be the one to say, hey, but I'm with those under the law. I live like it. I go and I submit myself to the law even though I don't have to. Why would he be the one to do that? Well, I think if we go back to um, chapter 123, I think we get a glimpse into the answer. Chapter 123, uh, it says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Here's what I think the answer is from Paul. Paul knows that there is a stumbling block in front of the Jews. It's the cross of Christ and I don't want my life to be another one. The cross of Christ is enough of a stumbling block and I don't want the way that I live my life to be another. I want there to be one stumbling block, one stumbling block alone and it's the cross. I don't need it to be the way that me, a messenger of the cross, lives my life that Paul lived how he lived, and it was defined by what was best for the outsider. Now, how, how can we take this and, and maybe apply a principle to us? Like, what can we draw from this and maybe faithfully apply it to us? Well, uh, let me give you a couple of examples. There's far more than two, but I'm going to give you two. Uh, we live in an incredibly diverse city. Most diverse city in the most diverse country the world's ever known. We have religious neighbors all around us. And so when you're having a meal with a Hindu who worship a cow, don't eat a steak. Like, don't, don't have a meal with a Hindu and then get your steak knife out and your fork and just, like, slice through it and go, oh, if you just knew how this cow tastes, like, you would know Jesus is on the other, other end of this one right here. Like, you would come to him if you just put this in your mouth. Don't do it. Don't do it. Or if you're um, having a meal with a Muslim, don't, don't order a beer and start talking about Hops. Do that with me. Don't do it. Now, are you free to eat a steak and have a beer together? Absolutely. But would it be a stumbling block in those two contexts? Absolutely. So don't do it. Use your freedom as a means to love your neighbor. Now he pivots to uh, another group of people in verse 21. It says to those outside of the law, I became as one outside of the law not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. So outside the law, think Gentiles, the non-religious who don't follow the, 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 the law. And he's saying, hey, when I'm with them, I don't follow the law. I don't submit myself to the law when I'm with people um, who don't. But it doesn't mean, again, that I'm, not, that I'm free from the law. It doesn't mean I'm some, you know, uh, wild cartoon character that I'm trying to think of the name of and I can't think of the name of it that just buzzes around everywhere. That's the one. That's what I was going for. I, I'm under the law of Christ. I'm under the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? Well, it's only used one at a time in the New Testament. Galatians 6, two. bear one another's burdens. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What does that mean? Well, in a, in a broad sense, it's the ethical teachings of Jesus. But in a narrow sense, it means at least this to love your neighbor as yourself. And I find it incredibly interesting that Galatians 6 applies that inside the church, and here Paul applies it outside of the church, that we would love our neighbor as our self. And so again, we have Paul's defining grid for eat or don't eat, defined by loving your neighbor as yourself. Would, would this be loving them as I love myself to choose to eat or to choose not to eat? And now he turns to a third group group, Verse 22, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. Now, it's tempting, I think, to see this as a reference back to chapter 8 and those who are described as weak because they wouldn't eat the meat for matters of conscience. Uh, And that is a very legitimate interpretation and possibly could be what Paul is talking about, but I don't think it is. I don't think it is because if that's who he's talking about, then what he's just said is there's two groups of non-Christians I want to convert and then one group of Christians that I want to convert. So I don't think that's what's going on. I think Thistleton, wonderful commentator on this book, is right. So the weak is a designation denoting an objective social contrast between the influential and the vulnerable. In this context, the weak may mean that those whose options for life and conduct were severely restricted because of their own dependence on the wishes of patrons, employers, or slave owners. The weak stand in contrast to those with social power, influence, political status, ability, or competence in a variety of areas, and by contrast, have low social standing and crave for identity, recognition, and acceptance. Paul's foregoing of his rights to a professional status by functioning as a religious rhetorician, demonstrate his solidarity with the weak. See, Paul, he could have showed up in Corinth. He could have walked in and been part of the esteemed class, the professional rhetoricians. And instead, he said, No, I'm going to be a tent maker. I'm going to make my money over here, and I'm just going to be a humble, free preacher of the gospel. And in doing so, he identified with the poor to win the poor. He identified with the weak to win the weak, to reach them. He said, I am exalted in Christ so I can be low in society, so that those who are low in society might become exalted in Christ, so that he could look them in the eye and say, you matter. I see you, not from an exalted position, but eye to eye, shoulder to shoulder. Those who are marginalized and vulnerable in society, Paul went right to him, in a way that just." said to them, I'm not above you, I'm with you, I'm one of you, and you matter, you matter. One of the things I love about Paul, um, I guess as a pastor I'm not allowed to not love anything about Paul, but one of the things I love about Paul is it has this one-size-fits-all gospel, but not a one-size-fits-all articulation or demonstration of it, and that for Paul, who he's facing Matters to him, right? You can you can read through the letters of the Book of Acts and see how he articulated the gospel different based on who he was talking to, to who he's facing. It matters. You don't by facing right in your jobs. You you got to know who you face in your job to be able to do your job well. If you're a barista, you you primarily face customers. If you're a director of a nonprofit, you you face the board and staff and donors. Like you got to know who you're facing in order to do your job well. And the same is true in Christianity that these three groups of people that Paul um, articulated here, they all had different hopes, different fears, different dreams, different anxieties. And Paul walks right into them and articulates the gospel, lives the gospel, demonstrates the gospel in a way that is compelling to them. And we need to be able to do the same, that not all of our neighbors are the same, and we need to be fluent in gospel enough to be able to articulate the gospel in ways that's clear and compelling and beautiful and confronting to everyone. We need to know that if our neighbor is a CEO, that they, they need to know about the dignity of work and the humility of Christ. If our neighbor is a traffic victim, and if you're unaware there are traffic victims all around us in Houston, a traffic victim know, needs to know about the freedom and fallenness of man and the dignity of the image of God and the restored dignity that's on the table in Christ. Maybe I articulate the gospel in fluent ways depending on who it is that we are talking about. Paul had a one-size-fits-all gospel, but not a one-size-fits-all articulation of it. He used nuanced approaches depending on who he was uh, with, but his core motivation never changed. The rest of verse 22. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some Paul is in no way suggesting a compromise of the gospel, but saying that by all means possible, I might preach, proclaim, live the gospel in such a way that that they might come to believe, convert, be saved. And more uh, than anything in this, more than anything in this text, more than Paul's methods, what he did or didn't do, what it is that I want us to see is the heart of Paul in this, that his conscious thought of Jew, Greek, poor, these are Overflows of a man who has been so consumed with the grace of God, who took outsiders and made him an insider, that he would give his life away to seeing eternal trajectories changed. And people who believe that they are far from God know that they can come near to him because of what Christ has done. And if you're wondering where this heart in Paul might have come from, you need to know his story. The story of a man who. Uh, who was at one point a persecutor and murderer of Christians who would have been the classic definition of too far gone. Like, nobody in this room, if, if, if we were alive with Paul, nobody would have looked at Paul and gone, man, that guy, he's right on the edge. Like, he's just so close. If we could just, like, one more happy hour, we'd get him. No one. No one. And then God intervenes in Paul's life in such a way that it says to Paul that category of too far gone doesn't even exist with me. Doesn't even exist. There is no such thing as too far gone for the Christ for the Christ, and for the cross. There's no such thing as too far gone. That category does not even exist with God. And Paul, giving his life away, to see rich, poor, Jew, Gentile, slave-free encounter Jesus and see their life eternally changed. This man consumed with the outsider being insiders. Now he gives two highly contextual illustrations on how to live in light of this. Verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all runners run? Seems logical. But only one receives the prize, So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. Uh, Paul uses uh, athletic metaphors fairly often. This is not uncommon for him. Uh, And This was a highly contextual metaphor that that Corinth hosted. What was essentially the the JV Olympics, like you had the real Olympics, then like the Junior Varsity Olympics, The the JV ones were in Corinth. Those would have been legit athletes. And he's saying, hey, listen, athletes are single-minded in what they do. Like there's a prize out in front of them. They have an objective. They are single-minded in their pursuit of it. Now apply that and live like it. Live single-minded like them. And by the way, they're doing it to get a flower on their head that's going to die in a couple days. You have eternal, imperishable realities sitting in front of you. Live like it. Live like it. And now he gives an example, a boxing example that's not really about boxing. The rest of 26, I do not box as one beating the air. Now, in in Corinth, they had, like I said, these professional rhetoricians, orators who would um, get up and they would speak in front of crowds and they were were polished and slick. But if, if all you ever did was get up and speak to crowds, but you were never willing to debate anyone, um, you were mocked in their day. You were called a shadow boxer. You, you were thought of as, as a boxer who would get in the ring by himself, just swing away after nothing. And Paul is saying, hey, listen, I'm not like those guys. I'm not like those guys at all. I, I am here to persuade who, Creek Gentile rich poor of the mercy of God, the grace of Christ, and I am not running from any conversation. I'm here to be persuasive. I'm, I'm not somebody sitting in a ring by myself, spouting off, nonsense. I'm not a shadow boxer, but then he continues on with the athletic metaphor in verse 27. But I discipline my body, and I keep it under control like a good athlete, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified and live my life in such a way that it's disciplined, it's under control, and that, that I am qualified for the message that I'm preaching and proclaiming lest I preach and then find out I've lived in such a way that I've been disqualified. And so what does he mean by I should be disqualified, disqualified from this message? What, what does he mean by that? I and mean, it could just be a simple athletic metaphor. It could be that there are people who are proclaiming Christ who one day will have no part in him. What, what, does, he, what does he mean by that? Well, everything in me Everything in me wants to step in right here and try to relieve the tension for you. But I'm not going to do it. Let me tell you why I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it for two reasons. Reason one is this is a bridge paragraph between nine and ten, and next week Paul is going to dive right into the tension, right out the gate. But there's another reason. The other reason that some of you in this room need to feel the tension. Some of you, have been on this passive drift away from Jesus, and you're in process of drifting yourself right away from him, and you need to feel the tension of what Paul is saying, saying, "Stop drifting, live your life in a way that you're qualified for this gospel. Stop drifting. So you can go back a few chapters if you need to, but just stop the drift. Some of us need to feel the tension what Paul has to say, and just let it be left on the table. And so I'll just say, for right now, that what he's saying is that the whole of everyday life should be held captive to the purposes of the gospel. Private, public, all of it. King Jesus reigns, and he should reign over all of your life. All of it. There's an eternal prize coming. The entirety of your life needs to be lived in light of it, but what's the prize? What's the prize? Anybody notice that we skipped verse 23? No? Okay, we skipped verse 23, but we're not skipping verse 23. I do it all. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. I do it all Everything I do for the progress of the gospel that I might share in it, and it's literally simply that I might share in it. The, in its blessings, that's an interpretive add-on. It's not there. It's simply that I might share in it. What is it? The nature and the essence of the gospel that I might share in it. And what is the nature and the essence of the gospel? Nothing short of God becoming one of us, immersing himself into our broken world to become like us for us, that he would go to the cross, die for you and for your sin because he had a prize out in front of him. He had a goal out in front of him. He had something sitting right out in front of him. You know what it was? It was you. It was you. It was me. The goal sitting out in front of Christ was you. It was his redeemed people. The gospel is a God becoming like you, for you, who welcomes the outsider, who... Became all things to all people, which is why Paul's language in this chapter is nothing but a reflection of the eternal heart of God. Nothing short of it an the eternal heart of God, which is why a gospel-motivated life is an outsider-oriented life, because God is an outsider-oriented God. That from the beginning, what God has been doing is taking outsiders and making them insiders. God is an outsider-oriented God, therefore a gospel-oriented life is an outsider-oriented life. And what we see in Paul is simply a life that has been animated, animated by this eternal heart of God. And so I began today with a question. Why do you live in Houston? Why the Heights? I want to modify that question a bit. I want to modify that question with this. Um, Why do your neighbors live where they do? Why do your neighbors live where they do? If you're a neighbor who's been invited, this is why we believe that you live where you live. And we're going to let Paul answer that question for us. From Acts 17, verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. That means God decided where you would live. And he decided where your neighbors would live. The question is now, why? That, in order that, so that, they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us. Why do your neighbors live where they do? So that they might seek God and feel their way toward him and find him. How are they going to find him? Through you through you, where God dwells, taking God and making God near to our neighbors. This is why, this is why, there's no critique on other churches, but this is why Sojourn will never have a missions department, because we believe that God already has a missions department. It's called the church. We're not going to take a segment of the church and make that the mission segment of the missions department. You are the missions department that God has said, here's my means to reach them. You. You. You are, we are together God's missions department. It's why we say things like, hey, go, go build a relationship with your neighbor. And then, hey, once you've got this relationship, expose them to community. Walk them into the church. Hold their hand. Take them into this community that we call the bride of Christ. And then together, Speak the gospel, live the gospel together. You are God's missions department. How much, how, how different would our life be if we really did embrace and believe that God in his sovereign plan placed you next to your neighbor so that your neighbor might seek him and find him through you? What kind of relationships would we have with our neighbors? What, How much more would holiness matter to us How full we would be with a humble courage, humble enough to not judge our neighbors, courageous enough to speak the gospel without fear of what they think of us. How much would humble courage mark us? And so here's what I wanted to do. Here's how I wanted to to close today. In a sermon on God welcoming the outsider, making them insider, on the church being, all things to all people, making Christ known, I I thought the best way to do this was to read uh, a portion of a letter that we received from a former member of Sojourn Heights, a former member who just a few months ago uh, moved up to Colorado, where it's a high of 70 right now. Because I think her words, her words... Capture our heart and our hope and crystallize what I think paul 's heart and hope is far better than any words I could come up with are and i 'm reading this with her permission five years ago, next month, I showed up on the sojourn 's doorstep, compelled by both curiosity and insecurity. I was looking for some sort of antidote to the war that waged beneath a crumbling exterior and made sense. Of the lies I'd wrapped myself in. I didn't find what I was looking for. Something far greater found me. I thought church meant becoming a prettier, more blessed version of me. I thought it was a tool to living my best life now, which obviously meant a 26 inch waistline, a husband, a few kids who always smile for pictures and give more than they require. What I found was a much messier me. But in that mess, a Savior who met me on my knees and resurrected my brokenness by the grace of the cross. Things didn't get prettier, but they certainly became more beautiful. Beautiful by the Spirit's application of the power of the cross, the work of the cross into me, whom He calls beloved a new creation whose life and love is held and authored by he who works and forms it into his very image. What joy, what freedom, Jenny Shorts. May we never lose sight, never lose sight that a gospel-motivated life is an outsider-oriented life because God is an outsider-oriented God. And may, when we're done, may, when our run is over and it's time to hand it off, may there be thousands of Jennies in our wake. Let's pray. Father, I, I, I do pray that we would be captivated with the heart of Paul as a reflection of your heart, and we would live it. That it would sink into us and we would live it. We would live your heart. And I do ask that there would be thousands of Jennies, thousands of Jennies in our wake. And for those who are um, here right now, who just go, man, I know that you say there's no such thing as too far gone, but it's because you don't know me pray that they would know that there is no such thing as too far for the grace of God and the cross of Christ. That the death of your eternal son says there's no length that you're not willing to go to for them, and therefore they can never be too far gone. May that be gripping to our hearts. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.